Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 176, The End of Middlemarch. Today, we discuss books 6, 7, and 8 of George Eliot's Middlemarch, bringing an end to our long and oft-delayed quarantine read <laughs> of this 19th century masterpiece. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. We're Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi, guys. Hey! Hi. I gotta tell you guys, when we decided we were going to do Middlemarch, mm-hmm. I had the sense that two things were going to happen. One, one of us would die during the course of the pandemic and we wouldn't have to finish it. Or two, <laughs> ha ha. the pandemic would end and then we wouldn't have to finish it. Mm-hmm. But we've outlasted oh. both things. <laughs> yes, I distinctly remember saying... We'll read eight books in eight weeks, and that'll be good. That'll be when we're going back to normal. And that was right. 15 weeks ago. Right. <laughs> and with a break in between. So we took some weeks off during um, vast social unrest. And I, I had to go teach some school for a little bit of time. And I thought, like, even during all that, I thought, well, maybe there's a chance that these fucking idiots not wearing their masks will put on their masks and people will get well and I won't have to or, worry about... Or that a functioning government would suddenly yeah, a functioning government and, would and leadership. In, yeah. And, and I won't have would... to worry about whatever's going to happen to poor Dorothea. Because I, I, one thing I don't want for Dorothea is for her to be poor. Mm. That would be terrible. Because mm. <laughs> she starts off as poor Dorothea. It would be terrible if she ended up as poor Dorothy. So, Dorothea. guys, this is this is all in a huge delay because we still have episodes that haven't come out yet. So, right. there could be a functioning government by this point. <laughs> I doubt it. I'm not. Maybe. I'm not real confident. I mean, look, Julia Ryder just took a month and went to the woods. Mm-hmm. Thinking I'm halfway we're... through. Yeah. I've taken two weeks. <laughs> I've still got two more weeks in the woods. Ryder spent two weeks in the woods, probably assuming that when he emerged from the woods, like uh, you know, like he's into thin air. Was that the book? Uh, the the John into Parker, the wild. Yeah, into the wild. That he'd return from into the wild and function government. Everyone sort of paying attention to the health and safety rules. Everything be pretty much back to normal. And in fact. Ryder, you walked out of the woods after two weeks, and we're actually still in March. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's still March. There's still denial going on. It's just going to magically disappear. It's effectively the middle of March. Of March. Okay, yeah. very good. Wow. Boom. Goldberg. Hey. hey. So why did we... So we've been... We hit you guys with five separate episodes for books one through five. And now we're in sort of a race to the finish. Um, we have all finished it. That's yes. right, right, guys. That's correct. Yes. yes. And I let's um let's just note who finished it first. Who couldn't put the book down and stop reading? Uh, who finished I it first? That was me. I it was, that was you. Me. <laughs> I believe that was me. Yeah. Did you finish it like a couple weeks ago, Todd? Yeah. Or yeah. Oh, how interesting. That's- Awesome. <laughs> Look, the dude from The Spectator was right. I said that in the last episode. I'll say it in this episode. The dude from The Spectator was right. Mm. Um, the book takes on its 
you know a real propulsive um it definitely does and emotional attack that i was not expecting and it also i argue becomes an entirely different book mm-hmm. um the last third in particular because the last third really focuses on um these sort of third persons that we weren't really paying too much attention to in the first five books um notably uh bolstrade bolstrade how do you say bolstrode bolstrode effectively bolstrode is the cause for all the problems in the world (laughs) yeah he he really does kind of swoop in as like a Dickensian character. Yeah. With like full of backstory. Right. And, you know, Mr. Raffles <laughs> well, hovering around him. And that like, that just like, because that's the last episode that we did. We were read that introduction. Right. That thing. And then that just like pulls you right through the last three books. Like that just. I, I would argue everything. that the the last three books are the great, are great expectations. I mean, it's basically yeah. great expectations. Yeah. One of my all-time favorite books, so I was uh, I was able to get through that in a lot easier fashion because uh, I liked it. Yeah, it was <laughs> but, an amazing speed read. I mean, I was like, I gotta, I gotta know, I gotta know yeah. how all of these dominoes that have been set up for 550 pages, which direction they're gonna fall in, because it is oddly suspenseful. Not oddly, but it is mm-hmm. suspenseful. You know, who's gonna get to live in Stone Court? What's right. going to happen to so-and-so's fortune? We've still got multiple men that Dorothea has a connection to. Um, so it was... Dorothea running a lot of game, by the way. Dorothea got a couple dudes that are circling around her. Plus, she's got some cash. And then it turns out she's got morality, which was not something I had previously thought about. <laughs> <laughs> she just wants to be good. She just wants to help people. That's nice. Use more than that. Um, yeah, I I, um, I view my experience with this book in three ways. The first 300 pages was very difficult to get through. I'm, I, I stand by all the things I said. The second 300 pages, I begin to see how all of this is going to interlock, and I believe George Eliot becomes a better writer in those 300 pages and begins to tell the story in a more captivating fashion. And then the last third is a fucking rocket ride. I loved it. Love the last third of this. <laughs> so good. So powerful. So uh, emotional. And then, of course, the cool thing, too, is you get to that last part and you begin to then understand the canon of literature that has descended from mm-hmm. this. And it's pretty remarkable. Um, and, I'm, and I'm not just talking about the obvious things. I'm also thinking about, like, the corrections. You know, books right. like that is a descendant yep. of Middlemarch. Um, and I really was fascinated by that. But even a book like Atonement is a descendant of Middlemarch. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I liked thinking about all of the um, family trees that, that bloomed uh, from, from this one big seed. Yeah, should we summarize the end of this book? This feels climactic. Yes. Go ahead, Julia. Okay. Um, well, Summarize effectively an entire novel. Because <laughs> it's 400 pages. Yeah. All right. Well, I sort of forget exactly the cutoff point um, between last time and this time. So jump in if I'm starting the wrong spot. But um, Fred Vincy, we got a lot of Fred Vincy right off the yeah. bat. Fred wants to be with Mary, but... He has he's just not up to the priesthood and all that good stuff or any any low level clergy position. 
And so uh, he has decided he's going to work for Mary's dad um, and just be a regular farmer type guy and just, you know, not be such a rich boy. Uh, Right. Right. So (laughs) that's a great plot. Um, Okay. So then we find out that Bolstrode, well, this this guy Raffles, who we have previously discussed, um, he keeps coming back to Middlemarch and... uh, holding this blackmail information uh, over Bolstrode's head that he was involved in very shady dealings as a pawnbroker and that he pretended... As opposed to all those super moral pawnbrokers one often encounters in fiction. (laughs) I'm in the pawn game because I like helping people. Um, And he... He purposefully hid Will Ladislaw's existence so that he could keep his... Uh, part of his inheritance or right you know the just woman he married he right. didn't exist super shady yeah right yeah okay so um so that's what's going on there and bolstrode is getting incredibly stressed out about this it is bad news ladislaw's gone he's decided to leave forever um, and raffles meanwhile is constantly just like coming in and being like hey buddy remember anything else bad because i remember something bad <laughs> Like right. Raffles, Raffles has a great name because he is exactly what his name sounds like. Just like, mm-hmm. hey, I'm here to stress you out a little bit. So <laughs> it's mean- a raffle as to which thing I'm gonna pull out and blackmail you with this time. <laughs> so meanwhile, in what I would argue is probably the most detailed portrait of a sad relationship of all time. <laughs> Lydgate mm. and Rosamond are uh, just, they are just not communicating. That's the no. way to put <laughs> it. Uh, yeah, it's pretty, that's pretty so bad. painful. Yeah. It is, it is amazing. It's amazingly Lydgate's bad. Really, Lydgate's if, am bankrupt. I correct, am I correct in that that, what really, like Rosamond was not that well developed before this section of the book, right? Like, I mean, she was a character, but it was mostly like we were in Lydgate's side of things. Right. And then, like, this is where we start really seeing Rosamond for who she is. That's, yes, is pretty, because it's yes. awful. Yes. It's, it's she, uh, very late in the game, it's described that she's in a dream world where she has always assumed that everyone wants her and that everything will work out yes. and she's going to be very upper class. And the reason we get so much time with her here is that we see it slowly falling apart and her simultaneous denial and her need to hold everything together and not emotionally react so it's a really Mm -hmm. fine-tuned description of a woman silently being tortured and torturing someone else Um, right and all this time lydgate um he's horribly in debt his reputation has been destroyed the hospital is in peril he he needs basically a thousand pounds just to get straight and then have a little bit of spending money, and like for some reason Rosamond doesn't really know exactly what their financial peril is, and they have this conversation where he's like, "Girl, <laughs> we have some money problems <laughs> that were brought on uh, in large part due to her expectation of their lifestyle." Right, the furniture. Right. 
The, all the, the furniture. furniture. <laughs> oh my god! Like, who was it, Todd? Was it Wendy or somebody made a joke before we started reading about how this book is really just about furniture? Yeah, <laughs> and like it actually kind of is. Yeah. like it's come up multiple times when you're reading. You're like, there's a real emphasis on furniture and how expensive it is mm-hmm. and how it affects people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay. It, so they right. are just not. That's up to about page seven hundred. They they are not doing well here. Um. Yeah, and Lydgate is becoming extremely stressed out and he will do anything well he was previously a man of very strong conviction that he didn't want to owe people anything that he was very independent eh, maybe i'll kill a guy um he did not kill a guy but <laughs> maybe he, i'll help kill a guy uh, maybe i'll just look the other maybe way while this guy kills a guy <laughs> maybe i'll or this guy has a servant yeah. kill a guy. maybe i'll maybe i'll make it real clear about what would kill a guy and then not <laughs> and show then up for a couple away. days with a thousand pounds. Yeah. So that's really the plot thickens when Raffles shows up in a drunken stupor and uh Bolstrode sequesters him to his Can you guys hear these fireworks? Chamber. I'm sorry. There's No, you got yes, fireworks I can going hear him. Just I just want you guys to know everything's fine. It's just the fireworks oh. of twenty twenty. I can't do anything. <laughs> Which is a pretty good memoir title, by the way, if we survive. Yeah, so uh, Bolstrode brings so, Raffles into his house. Raffles is dying of alcohol poisoning, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and he brings Lydgate over to check on him. And Lydgate's like, yeah, uh, this guy's a drunk. But he's um, going to be fine. He's probably going to be okay. He just basically, he needs to detox. Right. And so... To, don't give him a drink. Whatever you do, don't, don't let him, him drink. drink any alcohol, but here's some opium. Right. <laughs> just let him take opium if he needs to sleep or something. And so uh, Lydgate gives him this order, and Ballstrud doesn't tell his maid. <laughs> Actually, it's important to note before he decides oh, right, to not right, tell right. his maid, he does give Lydgate the loan of a thousand pounds that Lydgate wants, and has already asked for, and Bolstrode had refused him. But because Bolstrode knows that Lydgate is helping him with this weird raffle guy, who he's not really being clear about who the relationship is or why he's helping this drunk. Uh, he basically buys Lydgate's silence by giving him the thousand dollar loan right. that Lydgate. Yeah, wanted. and Raffles and is a serious Lydgate blabber. Leaves. He's a blabber, yeah. right? So yeah, so because right. he's already told uh, strangers. Mary's dad. Yeah, <laughs> he's already told Mary's dad who decided to re- to stop working for Bolstrode as a result of his right his character. So like on the, I think it's the Wednesday before Raffles dies. He uh, meets some dudes in a bar and tells them this whole story <laughs> about like every detail. Dies on a Friday, and after his death, these guys are like, well, we just saw him two days ago. Has anyone done an autopsy? How is this possible this guy died? Who was his doctor, for God's sake? Oh, Lydgate. And the truth comes out. <laughs> so then Bolstrode and Lydgate, by association, are... Ruined. Uh, ruined. Ruined. Yeah. Their reputations are ruined, and it's in that big public meeting, too, yes. about, what, some kind of grave site? burial who gives there's a, a shit there's this, <laughs> i thought it had something to do with disease which was interesting and a but rail yeah, car so, is there a rail yeah, car there's still, there's still the rail car people coming whatever uh yeah so there's a public meeting and uh and bolstrode is is really just knocked down there's and, a, a uh, duzek machina basically yeah exactly <laughs> and uh and lydgate is disgraced everybody's disgraced whoo we all right and, and then somebody's got to tell the women about all this and then Ladislaw shows up in town goes to Rosamond 
who is ha- under this sort of fantasy that he's going to love her. Right. Maybe take her away yeah. from her husband. Yeah. And Dorothea, who, of course, is still in love with Ladislaw, walks in on them holding hands. It's just straight out of a soap opera. Wonderful scene Wait, I, of misunderstanding. It's not what you... They're holding hands. It's not what you... It's not like I killed she's Raffles. Crying. <laughs> she's crying. It's... Have this opium. And then Ladislaw <laughs> pronounces his undying love, finally, for Dorothea. But to Rosamond, whom he hurts with his love for Dorothea, Dorothea goes home, has a moment of like, crisis, and decides to go talk to Rosamond the next day and do the right thing. Or to have the courage to... Oh, um, but before that, though, Lydgate goes to Dorothea... And basically says, is there any way you could help me with this hospital? I don't have any money. Right. Right. And Dorothea, who at this point is not yet hooked up with Ladislaw, so she still has money, says, I don't have enough money to do grand things, but I have too much money for myself. And all I really want to do, it turns out, is make someone else's life better. And it's this great sort of grand moment. And so she gives Lydgate the money to save the hospital, but not save Lydgate's reputation that will take hundreds of Well, then of she years. also promises to talk to Lydgate's wife, right. Rosamond, and ha- save his reputation right. via talking to his wife because Before she realizes that... Right, <laughs> she realizes that Lydgate and, and his wife are really... On the outs. Not getting along. Right. Not doing not great. Not doing great. And then uh, Lattice so goes to Dorothea and basically says... Let's do this. I love Let's you. Let's get it on. Dorothea's like... And they kiss. They actually describe yeah. a kiss. It's the first kiss in the whole book. I During think. a thunderstorm. There's yeah. my yeah. fireworks. <laughs> I know. There's, <laughs> there's that lightning. And it, it, she actually describes the lightning as like something similar to their love between right. them. I was like, oh, so you, all right. I guess this wasn't cliche Oh, yet. that's an erection. She's talking about that's, an erection. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Uh, well, and then everything sort of works out. Well, kind of. So yeah, Dorothea, wait. Dorothea decides I'd rather be poor and in love, and so yes. she marries Ladislaw. Um, her fortune ends up going to uh, someone, though, doesn't it? No, that's Bolstrode's fortune. No, goes I think to... her, she just up... gives up her money, and that's that. Yeah, she just gives up yeah, her money. This is gone. But Bolstrode's, Bolstrode ends up dying eventually. <laughs> well, everyone ends up dying eventually. Well, doesn't Bolstrode end up paying for... No. I thought he was... No, Dorothea ends up paying Bolstrode back the thousand pounds. Right. That he loaned, so right. they're sort of unencumbered. So Lydgate that. ends up living to the ripe old age of 50, which is three years older than Kazabon, the ancient... ancient the, the man old enough to be a woman's father. Uh... <laughs> Who was Dorothea's first husband, but he ends up dying of, I think, diphtheria, but not not after he becomes very influential in helping people with their gout, mm-hmm. which is strange little detail. <laughs> and it says gout is a good disease for making money, which yeah. I, I don't I don't quite understand well, because I it's think a rich the, man's disease. The it point the like point of that, and they, it's like going into plastic surgery. Right. Yeah, the point of that that mention is that. And this is said is that yeah he he was able to bounce back from this disgrace and become a doctor who made money and he and Rosamond had four children, but he never 
was able to really influence everybody and go through with all his grand plans. So he died a failure, a failure in his own heart, but a success in Rosamund's eyes. Right. And helpful for people who are limping from the gout from too much red wine and shellfish. Sure. Yeah. So that's helpful. That's good. Someone has to help those people. Um, And then, so Dorothy and Ladislaw, they end up being poor, but rich in love. So that's good. Um, Who else is there to, to be accounted for? Well, oh. then Fred and Mary get married because Fred finally learns how to handwrite. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and work on a farm. And right. they get to live in uh, Stone Court. And they write. And, 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 like, what did you guys take about the whole they wrote each other's books thing? Like, did you get the sense that, like, they actually, that, like, was George Eliot implying that they actually wrote each other's books? No, I think that they. Or is it just that they influence each other and they yeah, that, both wrote, okay. That they are each other's narrative. Right. As it were. Hmm. So Fred and Mary end up happy. Yeah, which is nice. Um, so there's like a couple happy endings, some bad endings, and uh, maybe a murder <laughs> that Lydgate might have uh, maybe played Assisted. a role in. <laughs> well, well it's but so it seems to me that like, I mean, what was interesting to me is like Dorothea really ends up emerging as our central character, yes. which I guess shouldn't have come as a surprise. But it did feel like, so the, the 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 heroic moment, like the 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 choice, is for her to go back to Rosamond, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's when she basically swallows her own desires and is selfless to help Lydgate because she knows that Lydgate is a good person, mm-hmm. despite his bad reputation. She and she's willing to overlook her own feelings about Rosamond, who might be taking or trying to take her man away from her. Ladislaw, and she's going to go and still do the good thing. So what was, what was interesting to me about that is, like, it wasn't that, like, it it's not that far off from where Dorothea begins. Because she actually begins the novel being selfless, right? Right. And thinking, like, I have noble, moral, high values, Christian, you know, godliness and, and uh, abstract intellectual thought that I can embrace. So I'm going to, you know forbear you know or with, with, like go without mo- like not listen to anybody and marry this older man who is never you know everyone says it's not going to be able to make me happy but my happiness doesn't matter what matters is my great intellectual life i'm gonna have right and so it was interesting to me that like at the end she still seems to be exhibiting the same sort of characteristics, you know, the same sort of impulses, like the the same essential selflessness and desire for uh, a clear morality and, and a morality that takes bravery and, and uh, courage. But she's older, you know, and right. it's a different thing now. Well, it, it's not as it's like her, her altruism is not so narrow. Her altruism right. is wide. And that right. changes her actions. You know, when she basically saves the hospital, it's not to save Lydgate, it's to give people she'll never meet a better chance at life. Which right. is, you know, that's pretty noble. There is an amazing paragraph that I should take a minute to rifle through and find, but she like opens the curtains and of her room and she looks out on all the fields and she sees figures that are close that are in, within mm-hmm. her estate and then she sees like the next level of people you know regular old townspeople um that she wants to help and then she sees like a figure of a shepherd and uh, his sheep and his dog at way way out in the distance and 
she's thinking about how she's a part of the whole scene and not just in her own world. And right. that that's right towards the end. And it's a really beautiful right. way of that's thinking. That's the kind of awareness yeah. Yeah, she's... that she didn't have at the beginning right. at all. It was just sort of like selflessness all she about was like her own soul. 17 or whatever, something. you know, right. at the beginning. I, right. I mean, I think that something that is really interesting about the ending is there's this huge status moment so we, we i don't think we really see dorothy and rosamond t- together ever in the novel uh until the end is that right yeah no at the beginning they're together aren't they i don't know they okay. might talk for a second but rosamond comes in and rosamond like in her mind is the highest status person in middlemarch but when dorothea yeah. comes in and she's i think younger or oh, no, i was thinking of celia yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, but when Dorothea like comes in the room, it's like she's this huge high status widow. So a widow is powerful. She has money. She doesn't have to have any romantic attachments. <clears throat> she's intentionally Dorothea is really intentionally like avoiding all these men who are telling her what to do and managing her stuff. Um, she's super super independent by this point in the novel. So to have her marry Ladislaw is is really interesting because she she gives away a lot of her power in this act of of love. Yeah. But I right before that happens, that's like the Dorothea I like is the like super powerful, super moral widow. Mm. Uh, are, is someone attacking your house? Julia? <laughs> this is so bad. Are they aware that Independence Day is the fourth? <laughs> Is it different they in got, the East they Coast? They got leftovers. <laughs> it's different in, in Connecticut. Is, does um, time work I'm differently? I'm going to see if I can make side? it quieter, but it's you all guys right. Keep going. It's fine. You know what? There's a great moment that um, for me where I've never felt such profound pity for a character as I feel for Lydgate um, yeah. when he goes to talk to Dorothea. He says, um, and "This is this is on page 767." <laughs> Um, it would be dishonorable to let others engage themselves to anything serious in dependence on me. Can you imagine saying that? Like, don't expect too much from me. You're going to be let down. To paraphrase oh. the gin blossoms. Um, <laughs> like, <it's, laughs> like, what a what a sad, awful moment. And that's that's basically when Dorothea says, you know, I have more money than I need and more things that I want to do with my life and gives him the money. Um, and he says, you know, God bless you, Mrs. Casabon, and all that stuff. Uh, but it's such a moment of profound on-my-knees self-pity um, that it's it's like almost Dimsdalian in its self-flagellation. And But but I, I didn't pity him. I was like, oh, f- he finally recognizes exactly who he is. Like someone has finally hung a mirror in front of him that he recognizes himself in. And I thought that was really deft on um, George Eliot's part. Great, I found great the, the Lidgate, the Lidgate stuff was really hard for me. It was so sad. Yeah, really sad. Like, why, you know, because you, you, the way that she draws you into like his debts and like, you kind of because you, you know, you've already established him as like pretty noble in his in, intentions and and you know in the earlier earlier books and we watched the rumor mill sort of spread about him and but then like to have his own wife like the conversations that they had I just I felt it was like. I don't know. It just it reminded me of like a Hopper painting or something, you know, like just these <laughs> these two people sitting on opposite sides of the room with that sad light going through it, and just like, oh, we're never gonna 
we're never going to quite understand each other. Because, right. like, you know, she's going behind his back and he's all, you know, doing all these things to try and get him money, thinking she's going to, like, save the day. And he's like, you're an idiot. What are you doing? And she can't even apologize. Like, she just wants to keep, oh, so painful. It just, uh, you know, and I ultimately, I just felt like, she comes across so young, right. you know, and I kept realizing like, oh, right, you're 24 years old and you got married. And guess what? When you're 24, you really don't know what, you know, especially if you're growing up in a time with this much sort of uh, romantic fantasy projected onto notions of marriage and uh, love. And I mean, really, it's it reminded me a lot of Madame Bovary. You guys have read Madame Bovary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a there's a little bit of the implication, which is, you know, really at the forefront of Madame Bovary, that, like, women, married women are sort of spoiled by romantic fantasies, right? Like, that, 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 that because they read books about, you know, Madame Bovary, it's, like, a, a really about reading romantic books, but um, in this case, it's just she's imbibed the Middlemarch, you know, uh, ideal of you get married and and you have a successful man and you have all the nice furniture and the good house so many sofas so many bureaus right and she cares so much about reputation to the point where she's willing to fantasize about like cheating on her husband because then she's still sort of accomplishing and winning you know Mm -hmm. it's like it's such a a profound delusion that she's suffering under yeah and i think george elliott Okay, well, there's something very interesting that happens that we did not mention, and I was shocked to um, fly by it. Uh, so Rosamond has a miscarriage, or oh right, right, an, oh, or yeah, po- yeah. possibly yes, an course. intentional incredible... miscarriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, oh, you thought it was intentional? But I thought it. Wow. Could be that she just went riding with the. So other guy. she's pregnant. It sounds like. You know, early, early on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, she, you know, one of Lydgate's super rich, annoying relatives comes by and invites her <laughs> for a ride. Lydgate says, don't do it. She goes for the ride. She loses the baby. Loses her baby. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, wow, what is up with this? <laughs> Um, it's such an, we go so deep into her mind and this is like the briefest, tiniest mention. It's like one sentence. It does come back though. She brings it back. I thought it was really well put because she brings it back in fighting with him. She says, maybe I should have died with the baby. Mm. And then And it's like a pretty devastating dialogue beat where you're like, ooh, this is weighing on her more than he's giving it credit probably. And, and, you know, like maybe even more than she's giving it credit. Well, and more than it's in the book. Yeah, like right. you, you know, narratively, it's 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 like it's dispensed really quickly. And there's right. one other time I think it comes back. This is so subtle. I I would have to do a, another full reread, but um, of right all at the end, pages. <laughs> right at I the know end, it's in let's here. I'm gonna go to page let's one. At, let's start again. Let's start next week. I have to figure out this reference. Right at the end, she like throws herself on the bed, you know, sobbing after Ladislaus rejected her, um, and. There's a line that's like, like she had only done once before. Like she, she didn't get out of her room. Like she had only mm. done one other time. Mm. Um, and I was like, oh, is this the, is this the miscarriage thing? But um, still, even though that Elliot put that into the story, she doesn't seem very sympathetic to Rosamund at all. And it feels to me like, 
an overall criticism of the world that Rosamond is trapped in. You know, she mm-hmm. doesn't want to have the baby. The baby's just another part of the fantasy. You know, because they do say even though she has this miscarriage, like, she's okay with it. Um, that is mentioned. Um, like, maybe it was for the best or something like that. Um, and Rosamond, you know, these aren't just fantastical delusions this is the only world she's allowed to be in at all and george Eliot is very aware of that like she's got other characters who are breaking out but it takes a lot of work for dorothea to be out in the world doing good she has to like reject a lot of people and have a lot of dead parents and people out of her way whereas rosamond is still in this totally contained world um so it is important the furniture is important her status yeah. is important. All these parties she's throwing, that that's her whole life. So, of course, of course she's devastated. Um, but then she, you know, she goes on and she has, in in the epilogue, uh, she has four more children. And she marries uh, a wealthy doctor who basically lets her have whatever life she wants to have. And, um, you know, she never was mean to anyone again in her life, it says, basically, <laughs> right? Um, which is... You know, it's a strange thing. The, the, the epilogue that's tacked on is a strange way of sort of keeping up with all these people at the end because it's, in fact, so much less detail than we've received in the previous mm-hmm. 900 pages. It's like just wrapped up in a tight little bow. Yeah, uh, he did die like, of diphtheria. It's but like he had the end next... of American Graffiti. <laughs> right. <just get> one <laughs> sentence, yeah. right? Died in Vietnam. You're like, whoa, I'm exactly. sorry, what? <laughs> what? what? <laughs> that's way more interesting than this fucking movie. <laughs> <laughs> He died prematurely of diphtheria. Um, <clears throat> so, so at the end, you know, Rosamund and Lydgate's um, relationship in the epilogue, it says something along the lines of, they both learn to care about each other, basically. Like, yeah. Rosamund's opinions about the world became more worldly because she got older and she had gone through right. some shit. And Lydgate right. began to listen to her and value her opinion more. Which is essentially just, you know, sort of what happens to immature people when they mature with one another. Right. But they've got all this trauma behind them. Um, and so, well, so... I mean, I mean part strange... of that to me is also just, like, what's what's crazy. I mean, what, what's so interesting reading this book from our modern-day perspective is, like, divorce is just not an option. Yeah. Right. Like, it's, like, literally impossible. Like, cause I'm reading the Lydgate and Rosamond section. I'm like, oh, they're going to split up. Mm-hmm. But it's, like, mm-hmm. not even a thing. Like, you can't. Well, you they, just, think you just about the social shame despair. of the Babysitter's Club in the 1980s. <laughs> with the divorcees exactly. on the street, for God's and it sake. Was al- yeah, the divorce rate was already up to 50%. There. <laughs> and already the no, shame. Like, I know. It's so profound. Like, these people, like, that's, I mean, it's the same sadness Dorothea felt with Cosabon. It's like, oh. This is just my lot yeah. in life. I have made a choice. I have chosen wrong, and I am stuck with it forever. I've made a terrible yeah, mistake. and that's oh a huge, God. huge part of the point of the book, right. <laughs> which oh, is so different. There's these really optimistic messages, which I think we should get to soon. But um, I, of course, I made a star on this section. This is Dorothea's like pep talk to Rosamond. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly run Marriage through the wall is shit, by the so... way. <laughs> what? It's not exactly run through the wall shit, by the yeah. way. <laughs> Marriage is so unlike everything else. There is something even awful in the nearness it brings. Even if we love someone else better than than those we are married to, it would be no use. I mean, marriage drinks up all our power of giving or getting any blessedness in that sort of love. 
I know it may be very dear, but it murders our marriage. And then the marriage, <laughs> then the marriage stays with us like a murder and everything else is gone. And then our husband, if he loved and trusted us and we have not helped him, but made a curse in his life. And then she just trails off. But like, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> that's her yeah. big don't cheat that's... on your husband monologue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not and that, that would drive me into the arms of another quickly. <laughs> like, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and sleep with whoever I want to. <laughs> I mean, that's so dark. It's so yeah. it's such a dark view of marriage. Um, and but I mean, that's the there's no out. It's not even a physical out. It's the eternal. There's no out because right. these people are religious, so therefore they believe in this afterlife, and right. it doesn't. Death doesn't even set you free. In this right. case, it doesn't matter if you got divorced. You're still going to be in heaven. Although with that Dorothea person. really gives up Kazabon pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> she is so glad she did not agree to like finish his great masterpiece. Because uh, he barely gets a mention again. Yeah. She's just like, whew. Well, I, yeah, I mean, it's hard to wrap your mind around like crossing your fingers that your husband will die. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Wait long enough. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Casabon. Look, he just needed more time and some skill. And a, a word processor would have helped. So. <laughs> here is. If, if Casabon had final draft, can you imagine what he would have done? <laughs> Scrivener. Wow. Oh. The he's emerging your favorite, huh, Todd? <laughs> um, I, I feel so, for him. So here's a question for you guys. Is Dorothea to you too perfect? Is she over the edge? Like she's like a saint at by the end of this book, you know? And but I but I, I feel like she tries to be a saint in the beginning too. So I right. feel like the impulse is what's good, mm -hmm. and what she has to go through the book to learn is that there's a worldliness and a like a. I don't know. You know, I mean, she does. She gives up money for love and. And it feels genuine, right? Like you, you really are rooting for her and Ladislaw because right. they actually get along. They have a connection. And um, so, no, I feel like she she was able to focus her saintliness uh, and pick her battles better, you know, instead of just uh, uh, adhering to this like sort of idea of being a good person or being a moral person which just meant self-sacrifice in the worst way where she was just going to erase herself which you know you imagine so many women did for centuries right. to just be like oh i can just be subservient to my culture around me and especially subservient to the man that i'm marrying and and that that is a great deed that makes me a saintly person and then like by the end she's like no i'm gonna take my money and do good things with it. And I'm going to screw this other money because I want to be happy with this man. And like, no, I think it was a real, it's a, it's a, it's a well-deserved education, you know, that she makes as a character. Yeah. It's because like, well she, she has regret and shame, yeah. you know? And, and yeah. so that takes her out of the realm of, you know, um, of like Emma in Emma, for instance. So Emma has this view of herself that is different than the rest of the world sees her. Dorothea, and then she, her only regret ends up being, um, you know, it, it's not her only regret, but it's the only regret we see in that book has to do with, you know, the love that she doesn't realize that she has herself. But here, like, it's it's that uh, Dorothea is recognizing that her regrets and her shame are that she has never thought enough about other people. 
And I think that's a pretty like good um, good way of thinking about yourself later in life. Like, oh my gosh, like I've been so self-centered all this time. I could have done more. It's like Schindler. Like, ah, this watch, this watch. Um, not saying that she saved the Jews, because I don't think there's any Jews in this, are there? Um, but I, I found it really realistic and hopeful. I, I found it really yeah. hopeful. Like, the people yeah, can too. suddenly decide there's more that I want to do for this world. Yeah, that's so... I was thinking, you know, feeling this identification with her, you know, more towards the beginning and middle. And then as she's, like, benevolently floating around, I started to, like, question, you know, my relationship to this character. And, I mean, I... I think that part of the the success of this book is Dorothea really does make people want to live a better life and be as generous as her. Um, But I also felt like just one of the emotions I was feeling was like, we all need people to love us like she's loving acquaintances. You know what I mean? Like she is delivering this level of like trust and compassion and just benefit of the doubt to her neighbors, literally her neighbors, mm, yeah. not her family. They're there, but they're annoying. <laughs> um, and Sir James. Yeah, we, we just need more of her in the world. And I think the question the book asks partially is like, are you going to be that person? Are you going to think think in this way? Think more like Dorothea and think less like Sir Chetham or less like... <laughs> Raffles. Raffles. <laughs> We're living in a Raffles presidency. That's that's the problem, right? <laughs> this is true. Like a guy who's got something on all of us and he's going to try and screw us over. I I think that's a that's a great way of looking. I mean, she's loyal, um, which is a, a good quality in someone. But she's also, as she ages through the book, her her loyalty stops being um, a childhood loyalty and being more an emotional one. And I think that's a that's a good and interesting message to to show how she's changed. Like she was loyal to Casabon because she fell in love with him on that first day or whatever. But then she realized it's not it wasn't he wasn't good for her. Um, and in fact, giving away his money to the hospital is a better memory of him than his fake ass books. Um, I, I mean, I just uh, I just quite enjoyed it. <laughs> it's a fucked up book, though. It's a desperately fucked up book. People are fucked up in this thing. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, that's what I was saying last time. Like, I couldn't even really see a happy ending because it felt so cynical, mm-hmm. you know. But it does have a happy ending, right? Like, the couples that you kind of that you were rooting for end up together. Um, and what I like about the happy ending that it does deliver is there's variation within it. Um, mm-hmm. It's not so pat as like love is the thing that you need because you have like Lydgate and Rosamond who are just kind of like function as a pair. And like, you know, you don't get the sense that they were like satisfied by this romantic love in the way that you assume Dorothea and, and, and Ladislaw had, um, or Fred and Mary who, you know, Fred has to give up all his expectations of wealth and success and reputation and just become a, dirty farmer with the garths right. you know like and he's and yet you get the sense that he's a better person for it and yeah. that they're happy like so i don't know that kind of variation like that's the kind of thing i i i don't think i get from an austin novel you know mm-hmm. like austin novels it's like 
it all works out plot-wise very similar to this, but then it's like, and happily ever after. Like, right. they were married and they were wealthy. Like, they got the money and love. And I feel like this this book sort of leaves enough options there and, to, to sort of find yourself. And this book also has maybe one of the greatest last paragraphs in the history of literature. Yeah, no shit. Oh, my God. Writer strong, narrate the end of Middlemarch for us in your best oh. book narrator voice. It's so fucking uh, uh, good. Uh, uh, uh. Sit back, ladies and gentlemen. Ryder Strong reads George Eliot. <laughs> no problem. Her finely touched spirit had still its fine issues, though they were not widely visible. Her full nature, like that river of which Cyrus broke the strength, spent itself in channels which had no great name on the earth. But the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs oh, it's so good it's beautiful it's, so it's good. um it's a totally reminds me of that classic poem the uh uh what is it the churchyard uh oh my god you guys everybody read this in english class in high school and i'm totally blanking on it Basically, it's it's the unknown churchyard, you know, poem to all the uh, the unnamed people in this church, right. unhistorical, you know. And it's like, oh, for it to land there at the end of this book is just devastating because you're like, oh, I've I've spent eight hundred pages, nine hundred pages with these people, and they probably don't matter, right? <laughs> don't matter. But it makes you it makes you ask about your own life, like yeah. a hidden life and rest in an unvisited tomb, like all this nine hundred pages. For a glimmer in the history of the world, you know? And yeah. here's a super, uh, I think the line should be taken as generally as it, it is meant, but I, a super feminist read of this too is I think there there is some huge portion of that is specifically to direct people's eyes towards women. Mm-hmm. They are mm. not on the list of important people in this town. They don't get to go to the meeting and hear news directly, but they're small emotional actions and relationships are changing lives. Um, All the women, even the women we don't like. Um, And no women in this book, no women in this book that I can think of are actually like compliant and passive. They are stubborn in different ways and they are strong willed and their histories have disappeared. You know, when we Mm -hmm. think of actual historical records, 50% 50% of the population, you know, gone. So right. I think that line really points to that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, they're, they're hidden figures, as the saying goes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so good. Elegy written in a country churchyard by Thomas Gray is the poem. Ah, I know exactly what you're speaking of. Which actually does predate this book by 100 years, so she might have been consciously referencing it. So did George Eliot write uh, another book as good as Middlemarch? Yeah, she wrote... She was already famous when she wrote this. So her most famous book before this was Daniel Deronda. I have not read that. Um, I've not read it but either. Happy to, happy to keep going. <laughs> so well, I mean, let's. <laughs> let's uh, I mean, we're going to be Elliot completist. Little, so, little bit wait. of a break until the next right, so pandemic. <laughs> let me let's back up though, because th- this was a huge, huge project for us and a, a big commitment. And I am wondering, do you guys feel? Especially in light of that last paragraph, do you feel that 
that this book changed you? Did it alter you? Was it worth three months of close attention? You know? <laughs> I, I'm serious. Um, yeah, you know, for me, it, it actually has a couple of strong purposes for me. Just as a writer, it's amazing to see the arc of a 900-page novel and mm-hmm. what you can do. So there's that part. That I am a professor of creative writing at the number nine public university in America and had not read Middlemarch <laughs> previously. <laughs> Feels like something I should have done. And <laughs> Moby Dick's next. So. And uh, <laughs> it's it was a black area in my learning that I should have filled in earlier because it is it it's so clearly like I said at the top of the show, um, part of a family tree that I should have been aware of. So there's that. And then just as um, a reader of fiction, like I, I'm i amazed by the sweep. You know, I just the sweep of a small novel inside of a little town, what you can do with it. Um, so I, I think the influence on me creatively, I think, will will last in some form or fashion. But I feel like a, a moron for not having read it earlier. But it, mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have appreciated it like I did now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the big question that I've been asking myself is, would I have finished this book? Hmm. I don't think I would have. Uh, I wouldn't I have. have pressure. I don't know if I would have. And that's what, you know, and that is an important caveat because, you know, it's, and I, I think more than anything uh, that just has to do with, with the style of the time, mm-hmm. you know, like we are so used to things being easily digestible, short sentences, active voice, you know, like we, we're just not used to these this kind of writing anymore. And um, and so I'm really glad that this project that, you know, that we took on this project because I don't think I would have gotten past those first two or 300 pages. But now that I did, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've, I've said it before in various forms, but I think that this, this book is for me what Austin is for a lot of other people, mm-hmm. you know, like this is the sort of uh, masterpiece of, you know, English literature, novels, novel, early novels, by a woman, you know, that that exposes the private lives and inner thoughts of people in a in a century that feels very foreign to me. And yet by the end of the book is so familiar, is so understandable. I will remember these characters names and histories, I think, in a way that I don't remember Sense and Sensibility, which we read less than a year ago. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you any of the characters name. Mm-hmm. I can give you a general sense of Sense and Sensibility. I can be like, oh, there were three daughters and a mom and they moved somewhere and then there were some guys and they flirted, you know, but like <laughs> this and, and, and maybe this is just a function of length. Right. And time spent. But at the end of this book, like these characters, like I feel like I, I'm in the club. Right. Like, I'm going to be able to look at you guys. You know, and whoever else in the world has read this book and be like, oh, she's such a Dorothea. <laughs> or, that woman's really being a Rosamond right now. Right. You know, I don't know. I feel like they're, they're actually, I'm going to remember these people and, and I'm going to remember, they feel so fully fleshed out and real. And um, that's just great. I'm, like that's, I'm looking at my bookshelf right writing. now and I'm in my office. Uh, it's mostly nonfiction. And there are books here that I love that I've read. And I'm trying to think if I could tell you a single person's name in mm-hmm. any of these right. books, and I can't. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which, I think you're right about that. That says something. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Well. How about you, Julia? Reading it a second time? Did you have a... Yeah, I was worried different... that it would feel like... I mean, rereads can either go one of two ways. Either it's like, oh, 
this is the best. Wow, my favorite exactly thing. What I thought. Or yeah. like, why am I spending so much time on what something I've already done? Um, and I was amazed how much. I, what I remembered, I remembered some characters very clearly, Casaban and Dorothea specifically, and Lydgate and Rosamond a little. But I remembered the themes uh, and the suffering more mm-hmm. than the plot. So, <laughs> as I think was clear well, as we were talking, sense, yeah. I did not really remember what was going to happen, but I knew that marriage was a disappointment. <laughs> and that morals were important. <laughs> and that, yeah, that life was, I'm sure I said this in the very first episode. What this book is actually about is your expectations. When you think back to the first chapter, your expectations of your life, your ambition, and right. how you will fail <laughs> against what? those youthful so ideas. That's right? really that true. Because yeah. they, all, they all fail. Yeah, and they all fail. We still have a happy ending. Yeah, it's very um, like in a weird way. So to it's read very, that like, in Buddhist, in your thirties, right? you have to like embrace suffering yeah. to a certain extent. Yeah. So when I read it before, I was like twenty six or however old I was when we were hanging out, and now I'm in in my thirties, my late thirties, and it's it's actually a more positive read now. You know, they go on and they they like persevere through all of these things. So I think this is a book. I know this is a book that people read throughout their life, and I will look forward to reading it again. I uh, I was trying to remember if I if I remembered how this book started because it was three months ago, <laughs> and I did not remember this weird prelude. Uh, who that cares much to know the history of man and how the mysterious mixture behaves under the varying experiments of time has not dwelt at least briefly on the life of Saint Teresa has not smiled with some gentleness at the thought of the little girl walking forth one morning, hand in hand with her still smaller brother, to go and seek martyrdom in the country of Moors. I don't remember reading that. (laughs) Maybe you didn't. Maybe it was a bridge. I think we actually referenced it in our first episode. Um, Miss Brooke had that kind of beauty which seems to be thrown into relief by poor dress. Now that one I remember. Because it reminded me of the opening line of um, Gone with the Wind. Hmm. Interesting. Who was I when I was reading all of these pages? Back in March. Someone one who week thought ago. quarantine would be a couple of oh weeks. Oh my god. <laughs> Look, if we have to read another goddamn 900 page book because you people can't stop yourself from going to the beach and licking strangers, I'm going to kill myself. Oh my god. Well, I think we should do Moby Dick at some point. How dare you? Maybe next how summer. Da- how dare you? I'm ready for next summer. Tolstoy. When we're locked back in. Next summer sounds great. <laughs> think we can make or it. Or Tolstoy. Let's do War and Peace, man. Let's do it. Eh, I think maybe Moby Dick. <laughs> Look. War and Peace is bigger than Moby Dick. And like I started reading War and Peace like six months ago. Not only is it translated from the Russian, but they just leave French in there because like, they're actually <laughs> speaking French to each other. And it's untranslated. So you have to like either know it or like be looking at footnotes that give you a couple of like mini. Tra- it's I was like, oh my god, this is this is gonna take forever. So I stopped. Yeah, look, <laughs> as long as there's a uh, choose your own adventure about a spy's life, I'm not reading more peace. <laughs> <laughs> I can well, choose what happens in those books. All right, we're gonna get you on the next round, Todd. All right, we're gonna get well, you look, again. If we, if we make it to next summer, we can read Moby Dick. That'll be a right around episode. 250 by then i feel like i yeah. could 
I could settle yeah. down with a little, little Moby we'll Dick do... action. Or we could just do episode 200 and just make it Moby Dick. That's, that's, I, that's well, you know what, guys? Th- I just, seriously, thank you for, for going with my suggestion here and reading this. Oh, no. Thank it was you. great. This was awesome. Thank you. It was, yeah. it was so cool to read it. And uh, listeners, um, if you want to ask us any questions about it, we're really super prepared to not ever talk about it again so you're, you're on your own you're on your own people sorry there's a lot of scholarship out there julia you should do a, a live zoom with the listeners and talk about the book with them while Ryder and i are camping what <laughs> i'm clearly going camping with Ryder. you can do all the zooms yeah. you can sit in your house in air conditioning and do a live and zoom, do zoom about yeah. middle march with our listeners all right people we'll set that up you just watch your email box <laughs> Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>